All right, how's everybody feeling? Glad you braved the cold and the snow and all that stuff. Let's stand up and pray real quick, and hopefully it'll be worth it to you, and you'll be glad you came today. So, Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. Father, I just ask that you will anoint me with the Holy Spirit today to speak truth, that you will grant unto us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you, that you'll open our hearts and that we will have direct contact with your presence and the reality of who you are. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Come with me to the book of Revelation. I want to continue to talk about uh, who or what Christ is. Revelation. You have to understand the, um, the genre that Revelation is. People who have tried to, I mean, how do you take this book literally? I don't know. I guess you make movies and you have two prophets that are breathing fire out of their mouth and destroying uh, tanks and all that stuff, if you've seen some of those flicks. Um, unfortunately, it completely misun- uh, misunderstands and misrepresents the genre of literature that Revelation is. The word revelation is apocalypsis. Apocalypsis, it's where we get apocalypse. But don't, it's not apocalypse like you think. It, it didn't mean that in the first century. It's a genre of literature that is meant to unveil hidden spiritual truths in symbolic form. I say that again. If you, in, in the second temple, first century, second temple Judaism, there was a genre, a type of literature called apocalyptic literature that was not meant to be taken literally. And the word apocalypse literally means the unveiling or the drawing back of the veil. So in that sense, it is, I'm going to use a term that's going to trigger somebody. Not here probably, but in that term, it is occult. Because the word occult does not mean evil or dark or black magic. In its actual etymology of the word, it means that which is hidden from view. It comes from ocular. So if something is occult, it is hidden. Okay? What an apocalypse is, it's a pulling back of the veil to reveal what has been hidden. Got it? But the type of literature that it is, it's written to use symbols to convey truth. So you have to be able to decode the symbols to get to where you want to be. The reason this is important because we looked repeatedly uh, in here in Colossians chapter 1, the first section in there where Paul says that he was revealing, that it was given to him the ministry of the word of God, which was to reveal that which had been hidden or occult or, you got it, or not veiled for ages and generations. So it had to exist in order to be revealed. You don't have to reveal something. I mean, something can't be hidden if it doesn't exist. Really important to grasp, because the way Paul is preaching the gospel, he's saying, I'm simply revealing a reality and a truth that has always been. Since the beginning of, right? But it's hidden, which is what? Christ in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So if something's hidden, it has to be unveiled or revealed, right? Right? So, Revelation chapter 1 starts out. 
the revelation of Jesus Christ or the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. So it's a revelation of Jesus Christ, not a revelation of the Antichrist. <clears throat> Which God gave him to Jesus to show his servants... Things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. The word signified there, if you if you break down the original English word, it's signified. Signified, signified. That's literally what it means in the Greek. In other words, the book is written in signs and symbols to reveal what has been hidden. It's very plain. Now, if you just take that one verse and you read the rest of the book... With that in mind, you won't get all messed up with your newspapers and your prophecy charts and all that other stuff because you'll understand that to try to read it literally or take it literally is to take it out of its context as a genre of literature, but it's also to take it out of its context of the very first verse that tells you how you're supposed to read it. (laughs) Does that make sense? So a sign points to a reality but is not the reality itself. So if you're driving down I-25 and it says Denver 60 miles, uh, or you get to Denver, there's a sign that says you're in Denver, whatever, right? The sign is not the, the thing. It's pointing to the place. It's revealing where you are, but it's not, you're there whether you got the sign or not. Are you tracking with me? With that in mind, when we come to Revelation chapter 4, I want to show you something very interesting. Revelation chapter 4, after these things, verse 1, after these things I looked, and behold a door standing open in heaven. Is he seeing a literal door? Ugh, something's dinging. Sorry, I don't know how to shut that off. All right, let me start over. Verse, Revelation 4, verse 1. After this, after these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and I beheld a throne set in the heaven, and one sat on the throne. How many sat on the throne? Okay. Now, with that in mind, come with me to Revelation chapter 5. Verse 6, and I look, now, I'm going to read this very carefully and slowly. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne, and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. Notice the language. I look and behold, I saw a lamb in the throne, in the center of the throne, in the midst of the throne. Not on the throne. In the throne. Not a lamb slain. A lamb as though it had been slain. In the midst of the throne, 
in the midst of the living creatures and in the midst of the elders. Now, we are trained, and I'm not saying that it's wrong, but I want you to stretch with me and think. We are trained to believe that the Lamb is Jesus, and we make this transference in our mind. John walked with Jesus. John sees Jesus at the beginning of the Revelation. He sees him with his hair like white as snow, his eyes like flames of fire. That's how the whole thing starts, if we kept reading in Revelation chapter 1. John does not write anywhere in here that he sees Jesus on the throne. He writes about something that's in the throne, that is symbolic. A lamb having seven eyes, seven horns, as though it had been slain, but he doesn't just see it, he doesn't, he doesn't see it on the throne. He sees it in the center of the throne, in the center of the living creatures, and in the center of the elders. Why? Because the veil's been pulled back and he could see what he couldn't see before. So that's central to everything in his heavenly experience is the lamb as though it had been slain with seven eyes and seven horns. So what's he seeing? (laughs) If it's symbolic, how would you interpret symbols? What is a lamb when you think about it? What does a lamb represent? This is important because it's in the throne. What does a throne represent? Power? Huh? I I can't hear you. I'm sorry. My ears are stuffed up. Yeah, ruling. Ruling and authority, right? Primarily those two things. So here's a key point. Central to the authority of the one who sits on the throne is a lamb-like nature. It is not aggressive. It is not forceful. It is not domineering. It is not serve me or else, turn or burn. I'll reward you if you do good. I'll punish you if you do. You get it? A lamb has a gentle nature. A lamb has an unassertive nature. A lamb has a submissive nature. So it's telling you something about the nature of the authority that's in the throne. Not about who's sitting there. For you to worship. Now, if you read on, the elders do what? They take their crowns off, they lay it down, and they say, Worthy is the Lamb to receive all this stuff, right? Let's come back to symbols. Seven. What's the number seven? Completion. God rested on the seventh day because he was 
finished. So it's fullness, completeness, right? What are eyes? They represent different perspectives. They represent different levels of awareness. Jesus said the lamp of the body is the eye. If the eye be single, then the whole body is full of light. If the eye be evil, then the whole body is full of darkness. So another thing that it represents is fullness of consciousness, fullness of awareness, or the ability to have full perspective without it being reduced down into a binary, either or good, bad, hot, cold, up-down polarity. The reason you have two eyes, because you're trapped in a world of polarity. I'll let you think on that one for a little bit. What are horns? You look it up um, in every Bible commentary, whatever they say, horns are power. And certainly it could represent that because you lock horns. Animals lock horns. <clears throat> and so I'm fine with saying it also represents the fullness of power, but really things weren't created to have conflict. Conflict came about, if you will, as a result of the fall. So if you notice the thing about horns is they always come out of the head, right? So it, to me, why do we have steeples? Why do they put steeples on top of church buildings? Because they're pointing somewhere. In other words, this is the house where the people are pointing what? Towards heaven. What does a horn do? Points towards heaven. So for me, it's a mindset on things above, not on things beneath. So it's a higher mind, if you will. Now, then what John is seeing is he's seeing a lamb-like nature in the throne, full awareness and consciousness and the higher mind and let's say power but he's also seeing it in the midst of the in the center of the living creatures and in the center of the elders so it's a if you will Christ consciousness that is at the center of all things one uh, Bible scholar said this about when I looked up symbols about the Lamb. Let's see if I can find it here. He said the Logos, the Word, in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. It's the Greek word Logos. The Logos sacrifices himself as the Lamb and becomes hidden in matter as if it were dead. The God cabined within the human heart is incarnate deity crucified in matter. I'll help you make sense of that in a minute. Here's the point. It's a lamb as though it's been slain. So 24 elders lay down their crowns. Where did the crown come off? Head. And what does it represent? The crown. Like the throne? 
royalty. So what it represents then is them taking their mindsets and their authority and laying it down, making it subservient to the authority of the Lamb. So in other words, they're returning to the central divine spark that is within them, or as Paul said, Christ in them, the hope of glory. To serve that mind and that authority rather than their own. The word worship in in the Bible typically means to serve. It's not some... You know, it's interesting, I posted a question on Facebook that got some folks riled up, shocking. But I want you to think about this. There is nowhere in the Gospels where Jesus tells anyone to worship him. In fact, he says in a couple places, worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Somebody came to him and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what does Jesus say? Don't call me good. Why do you call me good? There is one good. There there is only one good who is God. Jesus said, follow me. Jesus said, obey my commandments. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Nowhere does he say, worship me. If you look at most of the instances where the word worship is actually used like we think about it. Because again, the word worship means to serve. It really isn't, you know, this that we do. That is devotion of the heart. When we're singing songs, we're expressing love and devotion. But we can express love and devotion and not be serving in any capacity. Jesus or the mind of Christ. The places where people fell and worshipped Jesus, they were not in this state of love and devotion. Give you just one example. You can go home and study it for yourself. Jesus gets in the boat, he goes across the lake, and there's a madman, full of demon-possessed, full of a legion of demons, <laughs> who's hanging around in the graveyard and cutting himself, and they can't restrain him with chains. And it says he comes running to Jesus, and falling at his feet, worships him. And says, have you come to torment us before our time? Almost every place where you find someone worshiping Jesus, where the word is actually used, they are in a state or frame of mind that is nothing like what you think this devotion, whoa, wow, isn't that wonderful thing. Are you breathing? It's okay. Everybody breathe deep. It's okay to sing songs and have love and de- devotion and all of that. I'm just carefully defining terms. Because it seems to me that what's happened in the church since for centuries is Jesus said, 
follow me. Jesus said, obey me. (laughs) He didn't say worship me. And it seems like we're content to worship him, but not follow him or obey him. (laughs) Here's the other problem. As long as everything about God is other than you, outside your own soul, you will not have the power to transform your soul or to manifest the kingdom of God in your life. If it's within you and has always been within you, there was never a time that it wasn't within you, but it hasn't been revealed to you so that you can connect with it. Now we've got a completely different paradigm to work with and we got a completely different story and frankly, a completely different gospel. Jesus said, the kingdom does not come with observation. The kingdom of God is in your midst, in your center, within you. All right, let's look at how this works. Would you like to know what the oldest Christian creed is? Creed is a Christian statement of Christian belief. Scholars tell us what's the oldest Christian creed. It comes from one of the oldest pieces of scriptures in the New Testament. But it's definitely the oldest creed. It's not the Apostles' Creed. It's not the Nicene Creed. Those of you that were Catholic or brought up in some kind of a liturgical thing, it's not, it's not that. Those came centuries later. It's actually found for you in Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read it to you from the New King James because any of your newer translations are going to butcher the translation because it doesn't fit with the modern concepts within the church. But if you look at any of the older translations, you look at the Geneva translation, which was actually the first one translated from Latin into English, and predates the King James Version. If you look at the King, any of the King James Versions, if you look at Young's literal translation, if you look at the Dewey Rames translation, all of these are earlier, older translations. They all read exactly the same way. Your newer translations have completely changed them. So, I got my new King James. It keeps the purity of it, but takes out the these and the thous and the thys and the doists and all that stuff. Here's the oldest creed. You ready? Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what does he say? It begins, the oldest Christian creed begins, let this mind Be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And it is a mind that what? That ultimately was slain. 
So there's an overlap between what Paul's saying in the oldest Christian creed and what John is seeing in the apocalypse. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What's the next part? You ready? This is, this is where they mess it up. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And then it says, but made himself of no reputation. The best translation there is, he emptied himself. Okay, what's robbery? Okay, so I take something that doesn't belong to me. So I'm stealing something that, that isn't actually mine, that I do not possess. Right? Who thought it not, everybody say not, not, not robbery, meaning not taking something that doesn't belong to him. Thought it not robbery, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to say he was equal with God. Or he didn't think it was robbery. How do I say this? He didn't think it was robbery to acknowledge his own divinity. He did not think it was robbery. He did not think it was taking anything away from God to acknowledge his own divinity. And Paul's saying, that mind that was in him, let that mind also be in you. In other words, Jesus is the example. We made him the exception. He's the ideal, and we made him an idol. Paul's saying, see the example, see how he thinks. Let the way he thinks, let that also be in you. If he didn't think it was robbery to acknowledge his own divine nature and make himself equal with God, you shouldn't think it's robbery to acknowledge your own divine nature and make yourself equal with God because in your essence, in the essence of your creation, you are God. You are an extension of who God is. Everything is an extension of who God is and God is represented as the Lamb, the nature of God, the divine nature, let's call it that. The divine nature is represented as lamb-like, with full awareness, full power, and higher consciousness. And it's in the center of the throne, and it's in the center of the living creatures around the throne, and it's in the center of the elders, and Paul said, it's in the center of you. It's in the center of you, and what you have to do is access this mind that was also in Christ. That once you understand your own divine glory and your own divine nature and your own divine expression and you can fan that into the flame, then what you do with it is you don't lord over other people with it because that's not what a lamb does. If you're lording over, you're not connected to the divine nature and your authority is completely out of sync and out of step and illegitimate. Lamb does not force itself on anybody. Got it? Now, <clears throat> this word mind is interesting. It's proneo in the Greek, and it's where we get the word diaphragm. And it means to 
draw something. I mean, if you think about your diaphragms in the center of your being, it really means drawing breath or life from the center. It's an important word picture. But noose, the, the, the word for mind there is interesting. All right, I'm going to give you simple definitions you can look up and check out, okay? Encyclopedia Britannica says, according to noose in Greek culture, because remember, you have to put a word back in its cultural meaning to get it. If I say I have a flat in the United States, it means something totally different than if I say I have a flat in the UK, even though it's the same word in English. It means something totally different because of the cultural context. So Encyclopedia Britannica says the word noose in Greek, ancient Greek, was a concept of ancient Greek thought, quote, the faculty of intellectual apprehension and intuitive thought. Everybody say intuitive thought. It is distinguished, I'll explain these words later, but it is distinguished, it is not this, it is distinguished from discursive thought and applies to the apprehension of eternal, intelligible substances and first principles. So when John is seeing a lamb in the throne, he is actually peering by a revelation into the eternal, intelligible substance and first principle of all things. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were made by Him, and without Him. So you think, why? He's not just repeating Himself and waxing elegant, elegant, <laughs> eloquent, whatever. All things were made by Him, and without Him, nothing was made that has been made. Ugh. I don't think you got that. All things were made by him without his essence in it, without his substance connected to it. There's nothing. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So in the core essence of everything that has been made is him. The word. It is the first principle. It is the essential nature of all things, like the Bible scholar said, crucified or trapped, as it were, in matter. So that Christ, so that Jesus Christ came to liberate the Christ in you. Came to reveal and liberate the Christ that you are. So that ultimately the Christ that is in all things can be liberated into its fullest expression. All of creation is groaning and travailing for the manifestation of the sons of God. Because when the sons of God are revealed, creation itself will be transformed and released from its bondage into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So our entire job, the whole reason we are incarnated, is so that we can release from matter the Christ that is in in, in us and in all things. Thank you. Now, noose is apprehension by intuitive thought. 
and distinguish from discursive thought. What is discursive thought? Watch this. Analytical, linear reasoning reasoning that explains things or moves from topic to topic. Analytical, in other words, what you think of as mind is not what Paul is talking about. That's why mind is a bad translation. I get in trouble, people say I'm new age, whatever, because I use the word consciousness. I'm sorry, it communicates the idea better. I'm not going to surrender my power to communicate because people are insistent on misunderstanding because they get emotionally triggered because of a word. I'm not going to give up that power to communicate. It is not mind like you think about it, because in our culture, when we think about mind, we think about discursive thinking. We think about analytical, A, B, C, topic to topic, step by step, past, present, future, acquiring through our senses and making determinations. This mind does not come that way. This mind does not come through the acquisition of the senses. It comes intuitively from within, and it's drawn in like breath. In other words, this higher consciousness needs to be brought down and embodied in you in the same way that it was embodied in Jesus and then poured out from you in the same way it was poured out from Christ. And you can't do it if you continually diminish your own divine nature in your own eyes because somehow you think you're robbing God of his glory or his position or his power. So religious mindsets lock you into small thinking and get offended when you talk about your divinity because that's exactly what happened to Jesus. In John's Gospel, when Jesus says, For which of my good works do you seek to kill me? They answered him and said, For none of your good works do we seek to kill you, but because you, being a man, make yourself equal with God. So why did Jesus go to the cross? Because he, being a man, said he was equal with God. That's what offended the Jews. That's what offended the Romans, because Caesar was God. Caesar was Lord. It was his faithfulness. It was his unwillingness to renounce that mind, even at the threat of his own death that Paul's talking about. Paul's not talking about you all have to go die as martyrs. The word obedient there could also mean fully persuaded. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not think it robbery to be equal with God, but poured himself out and became fully persuaded even to the point of death. In other words, he wouldn't back off that mindset even to save his own skin. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Why? So that he can be a pattern and an example that you bow your knee to and confess glory to. Get it? Should we keep going or is that enough for today? Is that enough to chew on? I want to distinguish one other thing. Why don't you come with me to Ephesians 2. You doing all right? You breathing? I'll try and keep this part short. I know this is... I keep going over this because it's hard to get our mind around these concepts. So your job is to have the consciousness. The oldest Christian creed begins with the consciousness of Christ being formed in you. Oh, I I didn't finish giving you definitions. Let me give you one more from Wikipedia. 
for mind. This is from Wikipedia for noose. Back to the mind. Got it? This activity is understood in a similar way to to the modern concept of intuition. Perception that works in the mind's eye. It has been suggested that the basic meaning is something like awareness. So you can call it the Christ awareness if you don't like consciousness. Aristotle distinguishes it from perception, imagination, and reason. And it came to be argued that the human awareness somehow extends from the cosmic awareness. The human noose extends from the cosmic noose. The word phroneos, which is the one that Paul's using when he said, let this mind be in you, Plato relates it to the inner person and the receptive faculty, which is a gift from God. It is word related to diaphragm, so it is the ability to draw down the internal and intelligible substances into the body so that you become as much a Christ incarnate as Jesus was Christ incarnate. That's what Paul's saying, guys. They hide it from us in their in their translations. You see it? All right, let me just give you one more thing. Ephesians, I'm going to translate this for you. Ephesians 2, <clears throat> verse 1. Look at this dozens of scores of times. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Look at verse 2. In which you once walked according to the course of this world. Everybody say with me, course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. What is the course of this world? What do you think that means? Hmm? Time and space. Any other thoughts out there? I'll give you the Greek word. Uh, it comes from a root that means to be under the control or the dominion of something. You're under the control or the dominion of something. But here's the word course. Now this guy, I forget his initials. Everybody quotes him as the foremost authority in all the commentaries I can find. His last name was Trench. He was British. I forget the first two initials and I didn't put it in my notes. Here's how he defines it. Course, he defines it as all that floating mass of thoughts, opinions, ideas, speculations, hopes, impulses, aims and aspirations. So in other words, he's saying all this is floating around. Which it may be impossible to seize or accurately define, but which constitutes a most real and effective power at which every moment of our lives we inhale again and then exhale. The word for air is the lower, denser atmosphere Versus the higher atmosphere above the mountaintops. Get this idea. A floating mass of thought forms. Here's what he's saying. You walk according to the floating mass of thought forms that are in the lower, denser atmospheres that are influencing you and, in fact, controlling you. So here's our problem. You and I don't have really an original mind.
The real you is a point of awareness. The real you is not the thinker or the thoughts. The real you is not the emoter or the emotions. The real you is the point of awareness that experiences all those things. And your job is to determine, as you are giving thoughts and feelings expression, from which realm are they coming? From the mind of Christ or from the floating thought and mass of thought forms that is present and influencing you in whatever age you live. You're either you're giving expression to one or the other. And you have to learn which one's influencing you, which is why Paul then goes on in Ephesians 2 to say you've been raised above all of it. In other words, there's a place where you have clear headspace and access to the mind of Christ. But you have to get above the heavier, denser stuff. Now, let me just bring this home for you to think about. How much of our Christian mindset, how much of our church experience is the floating mass of thoughts that's been determined by the church and the people who thought the ideas by which the church operates? And how much is the consciousness of Christ? The word course here is implying this, that when you think and feel something, you generate a pattern in the atmosphere that other people can detect. Have you ever walked into a room where two people were arguing and felt the tension even though you didn't hear the argument? Have you ever walked into an atmosphere and just felt peace? What are you feeling? You are feeling the energetic pattern. You are picking up on the floating thought, hope, and aspiration and breathing it into yourself and intuitively knowing what's going on, right? So if two people arguing can create that kind of an influence that you pick up on it when you walk into a room, what happens when thousands of people, millions of people, generate a thought form in a religious context to a person that they refer to as Jesus, but completely misunderstand. Then you have a massive thought form. Now here's the thing about thought forms. They have to continually be fed by attention because they're made up of thought and feeling. So here's our problem. When you break with the group consensus, when you have a group consensus, this is what we believe. We believe this about what Jesus did on the cross, and if you don't believe this, you can't be saved and you're going to go to hell. What if that's not true? What if that's just a collective thought form that demands more and more attention? Then the moment you break with the thought form, what happens? 
one of the feeders got away. So what does the influence of the power of the air do? You better correct them. You better get them back. You better threaten them to make them afraid of me because even if it's fear, I can feed off of that fear. That's not lamb-like. It's not servanthood. So you can tell the difference. Because most of what we have in terms of doctrine is discursive reasoning and thinking. It is not the mind. It is not actual contact with the centerpiece of the divine spark within you. And so we give allegiance to a thought form. And when that allegiance changes, people's heart changes towards you. It's, a, it's fascinating to watch it play out. Their heart changes towards you. They go after you. They insult you. They threaten you. If you don't change now, you're going to go to hell. If you don't change now, you'll get to the point where there's no repentance for you. If you leave this covering, a curse is going to come on your life. If you challenge what we think, you're in rebellion, and rebellion is the sin of witchcraft, and you're a Jezebel, and all that stuff. What's it trying to do? It's got to reel you in. Why? Because it's all just a giant thought form that has to be fed. It is not the one on the throne. And it is not the one in the throne. <laughs> because Jesus came, I'm going to say this one more time, Jesus came to liberate the divine spark that was always in humanity since God breathed into them the breath of life. He was strictly the human incarnation of that divinity being expressed so that he could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So that he could awaken in you a consciousness that could also say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He did not establish a reality. He did not bring into existence something that had never been. Not according to Paul, because Paul said that which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but is now being revealed, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Christ did not come so you could ask Jesus to come into your heart. He came to be a living example to fan into flame. To be that example of that conscious and intuitive awareness that comes from within, so that the mind that was in Christ Jesus could also be in you. And it has nothing to do with creedal statements or doctrinal statements or being baptized or not being baptized or any of that other stuff. Does you no good to believe in a historical Jesus if you do not contact the Christ that is in you in the hope of glory? That is the hope of glory. And I'm going to shock you, but I'm going to say it. And you don't have to believe perfectly about the historical Jesus in order to contact the Christ that is in you. There are people who can contact Christ in them who have never heard the story of Jesus. And believing in a historical event does nothing to awaken 
the mind of Christ in you. You can. You can. But we're talking about an eternal first principle. And if we just get hung up on the man, the person, and the history of who Jesus is and who he was and what he did, we've taken that which is eternal, we have locked it into form, we have locked it into time and space, and thereby it has become unaccessible to you because you think the kingdom came by observation when Jesus died or when Jesus rose. When Jesus said, the kingdom does not come by eyewitness testimony or observation, the kingdom is in your midst. All right. That's why they call me a heretic on the internet. Let's stand up. I had somebody tell me Wednesday night, they said, uh, said the last service I was in, when I heard you talk, <clears throat> I went home, I was just vibrating like inside with all this incredible energy. And then went home with having all kinds of visions of heaven and various different things. That's what we're after. An impartation that opens up the scroll, if you will, inside you that manifests the nature of who and what the Christ is within you so that you can experience it for yourself. So that you move from believing to experiencing. And you move from the pastor said, the teacher said, the book said, the church said, the church father said, the Bible says, to actually touching the realm of the divine and opening it up inside of you. That's what we're after. So let's lift our hands. I hope that made sense to you today. Lord, thank you for everyone that's here, for braving the snow and the cold. And Lord, I just treasure every person that's in this room. I know that you're a... uh, that they're your treasure as well. And that you've buried a treasure inside each person, whether they know it or not. Christ is in them, whether they know it or not. And so, Father, we are asking today for a greater awakening, a greater opening up of the divine realm, a greater opening up of our own divine nature, a greater ownership and possession of that which has been given to us in Christ Jesus, to say that it is ours, it is who we are. It is who we are, it is what we have. And we can say it without shame and without fear and without inferiority and without condemnation even if it means breaking with the thought patterns that we've been receiving previously. And so, Lord, we ask today that we would just contact the mind of Christ. And I pray, Father, right now for healing in the minds, the hearts, the emotions, the souls, the bodies, all your people. In Jesus' name. Just take a few deep breaths. Remember that word's tied to the diaphragm. Just imagine yourself drawing in intuitively that nature of the lamb the nature of the lamb the seven eyes the seven horns all of that's in you it's already in you it's not separate from you it's not other than you it is you beholding is in a mirror 
the glory of the Lord. That's what John was doing. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Who do you see when you look in a mirror? You see yourself. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Father, we thank you. Guys, I mean, this is just incredible stuff. This is incredible stuff. This is the, if you were here when I talked about the butterfly, this was the revelation that God gave me in a download. And then the next thing I know, a butterfly that should have been dead seven months ago pops out of a box in the middle of winter. I have a good friend, Derek Brown, in the UK. He's an elder statesman in the faith, been around forever. Uh, Sorry, Derek. I don't mean it like that. I just met, he's been a great encouragement to me, a great mentor in many ways for me. And I had shared with him about the butterfly, and he messaged me yesterday, and he said that uh, a butterfly showed up around him, too, in the middle of winter in England when there shouldn't be any butterflies. And we're just in sync on this stuff. And he says it's a sign of the paradigm shift and the transformation of consciousness from that lower realm to the higher realm of the universal Christ. So we're part of something really, really cool, guys. Very cutting edge. Very provocative. But I'm totally convinced it's in the forefront of what God's doing and saying in the earth today. Totally convinced of it. All right. God bless you. Have a great day.